KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. Today on the program, we are joining in by Max Kapczynski of Palo Alto Forward. We're not talking about Palo Alto. Actually, we are in a bit. We talk about the uh, Preston Hotel eviction at some point. But the main focus of this show is about Cupertino and its, its uh, quote-unquote Hyperloop project. And uh, people are talking about uh, after a recent city council meeting. And if you know what that is, let's hear. Without further ado, so welcome back, Max. Hey, it's great. To be, it's great to be back here, Mark. So neither of us, I don't think, would be self-described as experts on Cupertino, experts on the transit. Certainly not the Hyperloop, but I, I think we, you know, we've we've spent a little bit of crossing paths with Cupertino. We've been to city council a few times, uh, largely the Valco project. Which, when you're in here in the past, we we talked about the Valco project. Uh, which I think we'll have a brief update about that later in the show. Uh, but we are talking all today about basically how the city of Cupertino is interacting with its biggest you know, industry, which is Apple, <laughs> and then how it's like affecting the entire basically goings-on of the infrastructure of the of city. Of the South Bay. Yeah, really. The city and all the neighboring cities. It's true. Apple is in Cupertino. Yes. Apple has 25,000 employees in Cupertino. Uh, They built a giant spaceship, uh, $5 billion, huge parking lot. You may be able to see it from space. They're actually putting Cupertino on the map. I mean, they always ask, does that mean the human eye, or does it mean like with any telescope? I don't know what that even means. (laughs) Um, But uh, it's a huge company, $1 trillion market cap. Uh, But is it all good? Uh, I think some people around here would say... uh, one thing which is bad is, boy, traffic is bad. Uh, and earlier this uh, this uh, month, or actually it was end of July 2018, there was a Cupertino City Council in which they were talking about a head tax on Apple to basically pay for transportation. Mm. Uh, so this is, I, I also, let's go back like one thing before. Cupertino, here are the numbers on where it gets its revenue from. Uh, 27% come from service fees, 24% sales tax, 22% property tax. Um, and they don't really get anything directly from, from a place like Apple. They kind of just get it indirectly through things like sales tax. What is a service fee? What is that? Uh, oh, utility service. Okay, sure, yeah. sure. Okay. Schools are not part of that because that is kind of cut out of your property tax yes. and then sliced and diced, brought back to you in yes. a way that... <laughs> Ground up by Sacramento, right, and, and then reallocated to you. Is that correct? Yes. And it's one of the things, like, if your city grows... You don't necessarily reflect the growth in what you get back. So it's yeah, <laughs> is there a is there a straightforward system to how that's laid out, or is it kind of arcane and subject to the whims of weirdos I, in Sacramento? I think that I think you can look at the pipes. I think they're convoluted, and there's a lot of things that are really nutty about them. But I think in government never. But I think it's more or less. It's not like it's always changing. Hmm. Uh, but the weird thing is property tax. But we're we're going to get into the the, the hyperloop. Don't worry. Uh, the property <laughs> tax out of out of uh, what you pay, six point four percent comes back to the city. 
Of the gross property tax receipts, yeah. only 6.4%. About 50% go to uh, schools directly to be sliced and diced. County schools, city schools, uh, or 50% s- of that 6%. I think it's statewide. It goes to a statewide school fund, sliced and diced, goes back, and then mostly it's, it's allocated by the county. And then uh-huh. 35% goes to Santa Clara County directly, if you're in Cupertino, and then comes back. Wild stuff. <laughs> it's just like it's... Yes. There's, so cities are, of course, looking for ways, hey, instead of... Piping it up, piping it back, let's do a head tax uh, of the big companies. And they were looking uh, to basically uh, get $9.4 million yearly out of Apple. Hmm, just a little tax. Just tax them a little bit. I mean, if you consider like how big them is, yeah, you'd say, like, okay, you're here. You're here to stay. Uh, you're probably not going to move. We can get 9.4 out of you, uh, and then we can... Basically- they probably made that much money yesterday. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's the thing too. Like Mountain View is putting this on the ballot, and this is going to ballot, I believe, this year. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they are looking to make six million dollars. Half of that's going to be Google. Half it's going to be everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think one thing is funny though: six million for Google. Uh, already Mountain View, off of three properties they lease to Google, makes thirteen point seven million per year already. Like it's, it's land owned by the city and leased to Google. Yes, and they have a fourth thing, which is I think new development land, which is mm. like thirty million up front, which is for part of the lease over you know a certain amount of years. So this sounds kind of like this sounds like chump change is what this sounds like, but they're making a big deal out of it being a head tax and them them getting a slice from Apple. Like, what are the politics around this? What do they sound like in? I think that's the thing. Ne- I, on next door, for example, like what people think. <laughs> well, I. I, I I believe an Apple representative went to city council and says, we heavily advise you not to do this head tax. I mean, of course, when they try to pull this in Seattle, uh, you know, uh, Bezos up there said, I'm just going to move out of Seattle if you do this. And I don't know how much it was offhand. I think it was more than this. Uh, but it's it's kind of the idea of a tax. You try to put a tax on things in proportion to how unlikely it is they're going to get up and move. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that's why the cities kind of need to kind of stay step in step. Because I think there's a pretty fair assumption. You spend $5 billion in a big spaceship. I don't think Apple's going to move out of Scupertino. Yeah, I don't think they are. They're probably a bit grounded. So you, know, you have a captive audience to be taxed to a degree. But I think here's the bigger question. $9.4 million on on tra- transportation. What would you spend it on? <laughs> Nine point four million a year, if because I mean all the roads are full because yeah. most I mean there are twenty five thousand employees who work in Cupertino. A large amount of those do not yeah. live in Cupertino. Yeah, and like the land is so expensive. Like if you try to widen the highway, like if you're for, if you're say try to widen the stretch of two eighty that goes through Cupertino, like what would nine million dollars buy? Would it buy six inches on the shoulder the entire length of two eighty? Like. I heard someone say... What, about half a lane along that stretch of 280? I mean, uh, take it with a grain of salt. I just heard someone say this. just land, not construction costs. Oh, that's a good point. Um, Okay, so, I mean, you could say, okay, let's invest in rail. Or people would say, let's invest in buses. Let's actually devote bus lanes. Or let's change parking restrictions. And, you know, maybe instead of having a lot of people commute in, we allow more people to live next to the spaceship, and then we'll have less traffic. That, yeah, I mean, how about that? What a what a novel idea! Really, let's let's not do that. Let's... Yeah, let's not do that. Actually, let's let's keep people. Well, this is the thing. This is the thing. Peop, city councils, people, homeowners, NIMBYs would rather see 
their town not change, but increasingly elaborate and expensive methods of transit created to ship people in from other cities so that they just does not have to change. This is like this is a this is like people that are pro transit but also, you know, on the conservative side of the land use debate. This is what they think transit should be for. It should be for shipping people from their suburb, which, you know, they can they can do whatever they want in their suburb, to our suburb that should not have to change. But except for this rail line that brings people in from the rest of the world. Yeah, it's an idea of transit is a form of technology which does as little as possible to make everything stay the same, as opposed to transit should be a method of actually allowing things to change and get better. Of yes. course, don't do that. Yeah. Don't, we never want to see our streets change. Oh, no. We never want to have... like the, it, It's people have a problem with seeing their city change or with seeing population increase or population density increase. Yeah. That's what they don't want. And I see transit as something that... like In the density we have right now, it barely works. You need a certain a level of density to even support good public transit and to bring it a bit of profit at the fare box. And our cities need to grow way, way more before before public transit will, yeah, I mean, will I'm, effectively pay for itself. Like it's just a cash funnel right now. I mean a place that's dense like Japan or London they just make money outright on running their transit. I bet they do. I mean, Japan has like private rail and they make money because they're dense enough that private rail is actually a money maker. Instead of around here, VTA loses 80% of everything you pay because it's all subsidized. Yeah. Uh, Because look at the scale. It's hard. Like it's hard to run transit when if you try to walk from here to your friend's house, is probably yes, exactly. <laughs> like, on average, it's going to take forever. Yeah, well, that's even to walk from the parking garage at the Apple spaceship to your office, like, is is a walk. That yeah. place is so enormous, and the parking is tucked away in these two big lozenge-shaped structures. If you drive past it on 280, that's what you see. You see, like, a, like the Pentagon's worth of parking, but in these two big lozenge-shaped lots. And they're they're far away even from the... Like so, you you sit in traffic, you drive all the way there, and then you have to, then you got to walk all the way from these massive parking lots instead I mean, of just taking a bus that drops you off at the front door because that's not incentivized. Just a moment to trash on Steve Jobs. He has this great <laughs> vision of like that was his like one of his final things. Like I I see this spaceship in Cupertino. It's like Steve Jobs, Mister Green, Mister Fruititarian, Mister. Yeah. Like, did he dream of building like one of the biggest parking lots around here? What a like that's what a fraud. Legacy. And you don't you don't see the spaceship from the highway. It's surrounded by trees. No human can see it. But you see these big twin scars of a parking garage yeah. they're visible from absolutely everywhere they're tall probably taller than the spaceship and that's kind of that's kind of what you see as apple's dent that they've left there or well their city mandated minimum parking level impact that they have yeah. I, I wonder how empty those sit during the workday i really wonder that's a good question I, I i bet they probably my guess is to a large degree the amount of parking lots probably determine how many people park there and you know they have shuttles and it's probably like well I'll only ride the shuttle if the parking lot is a pain so it probably hits <laughs> an equilibrium where it's always basically full yeah it's true like and that's another thing like parking this unwillingness to let go of of parking as part of the nimby ideology um free parking let's be honest it feels good it does feel good you pull <laughs> right into the spot 
You, and you get out of your car and then you go to do what you do. Yeah. And and just like other things that feel good, like, you know, cheap drugs, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not a good idea. You know, don't be swayed by the feel of elation you get yeah. when you... And it's not free. It's it not free. not free whatsoever. Yeah. You're, what you're doing with all that land, the fees that you're not levying and making your your local motorists happy. I'm every I'm everyone I understand if you live in a home and you want to park in front of your home. If you live in a place that ah I mean again, I it's understand. not something you should be entitled to. It should be something you ideally have the option to buy, but it's not something you're entitled to. It's not your right. And Especially yeah. if like if you park in front of your home and you're stopping buses from using it. Yes. Which is like there's a real cost every time. I mean, just think about it. We talk about the cost of housing people. This is getting, you know, a big bag of flesh and blood and something and just keeping it warm and dry and safe. <laughs> I mean, there's a certain cost. And like there's a certain cost to like housing our cars. Yes. And it's pretty enormous, honestly. Yeah. I mean, we have to not only do surface level, which is the cheap one, which is saying, don't use this land because this is car land. It's cheap, but it's also the biggest waste of, oh, yeah. of land I mean, by acre, right? It is indirectly incredibly expensive, but there's no real direct cost. But then people like Paul Walter's- There's an spending, opportunity cost. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, the direct cost, like Paul is paying $40 million on a on a big uh, parking lot. Yeah, $40 million. Like- <laughs> Like your nine million dollar Cupertino head tax, that'll just all it'll do is make relations worse between the company and the town. Like four times that would buy any reasonable, like actual actual amenity that might make people happy. Like nine million dollars is not a lot in the business of building big things out of concrete. So let's talk. Uh, so I think part of the things you're talking about at the city council meeting in Cupertino was what is not working, and they're saying let's say you want to go from downtown San Jose to the spaceship. Uh, it would in a car during. I mean, this thing during rush hour. This actually seems improbably short, but they're saying it, w- it would take twenty six minutes at like twelve thirty or one yeah. p.m. Or I mean, something. I think it says it would take like sixty minutes today on a Saturday when I'm when we're recording this. Uh, but it's a dubious th- claim. This is what they said on there: twenty six minutes by car. Yeah. Uh, on a bus, twice as long. I believe that. Well, and just keep that in mind. On a keep city it, bus. Yeah. Just keep in mind. Okay, if you want to, you want to get in a single pod and go there. It's going to be twice as fast as an yeah. amazingly efficient way to move a ton of people. Yeah, <laughs> but of course you don't want to make that any better. Uh, but from uh, passing the torch from fraud to fraud, uh, from from <laughs> Steve Jobs. I mean, I. So what is the gleaming new solution that City Council is really excited about? Apparently, uh, it's the Hyperloop. Yeah. The the silver bullet for the NIMBY view of transit that I elaborated on earlier. It's a great way to get masses of people from one place where you don't have to look at them to the place where they work and pay your, your fees that you keep increasing. That's what the Hyperloop is for. Yeah, I mean, but I guess the background, uh, Elon Musk has been developing the Hyperloop for 10 plus years now. Or oh, like, easily. Yeah, I, I mean, heard about it. I heard about it years and years ago. And like in the head, like on the face of it, it's pretty cool. Like it is a like basically a vacuum tube with uh, electric uh, propulsion systems that will move things up to 600 miles yeah. an hour. It's like an undergraduate physics problem, on, like a physics bonus problem on the test were turned into an actual, <laughs> that's what it is. It's like, given the pressure difference and the size of the, the what would the power requirement, what would the top speed be? It's, it's a cool sol- engineering solution for moving things really fast. It's elegant to look at, scientists like it, nerds like it. Policy people like it on paper. Um, it, people really like it. It's really exciting. It's being pitched to us by by old Muskie. 
And and I guess the old story of like how like what's the idea? And it's trying to get people from L.A. to the Bay Area. Yes. Really quick. Uh, and I let, let's. I mean, and he says like, oh yeah, we'll just deal with all the other stuff. And then he realized, mm-hmm. oh wait, it's really hard to get rights of way. And then he said like, let's move it over the ocean. And try to like have the hyperloop over the ocean to avoid rights away problems, which is like, well, I think you made your cost a lot mm, higher. Yes. But okay, well now you don't need to worry about earthquakes. Um, now I'm just picturing <laughs> making everything out of corrosion resistant materials, and I cry. <laughs> it's it's it, and why? Because it's hard to negotiate, you know, yes. land rights away. Yeah, exactly. I mean. Hyperloop has to be a response to the California high-speed rail project, which, as far as I know, is is decades older even than this, and billions, tens of has to be tens of billions of dollars to, if not more, if not like a hundred billion dollars to build this California high-speed rail. It's this disaster of bureaucracy and partisan politics and horrors of land use and permitting. And it most likely will never happen. So I feel like that is where Hyperloop is spawned from. And it's interesting. I mean, I, I think I was looking at the numbers. I think the high-speed rail was looking like 12,000 uh, people per hour could be on it. Yeah. Uh, and I think the Hyperloop, like they're specking out to be something more like 1,200 because people I, per hour, yeah, yeah, because I think that's about how much one car, like car is. I mean, because I, the cars on Hyperloop are quite small. They're quite small because I think the more you scale it, the more it costs to keep this this vacuum. So it, it doesn't yes. it doesn't scale super nicely. Exactly. I mean, that's the great thing about that's the great thing about trains is that they're <laughs> they're a proven technology. They can haul lots of people rather quickly. Is it? I would be interested to see. Is it people per hour? People per like passenger or like passenger mile well i wonder what we'd be in like passenger miles per hour that's a good because question because it is a lot faster yeah i mean i think it's i, I always think like the metric, throughput think. who can get on because yeah. if you think about who's going to get on you know per hour because I, I always think of course in terms mm. of disneyland loading times yeah uh so well, i mean people maybe a thousand only maybe ten thousand people an hour can get on the the high-speed rail but and 1,000 people an hour can get on the Hyperloop. But I mean, in an hour, those 1,000 people will be in L.A., but it'll take three, perhaps, for those. It's, it's, it's a very nice solution for a very, I guess, rationed few. You know, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work for everybody. Compared to something that's slower but has higher capacity, uh, you know, the— It's uh, more scalable, right? The, the, the Disneyland people mover. You know, yes. the, like up in the sky and you get on and it's <laughs> always moving. Uh, that has 48 thousand uh, 40, 4800 uh people per hour can get oh. on that thing it only goes seven miles per hour but like that's an amazing throughput that's why that disney actually wanted to make a city where that was the major thing that moved people around well like we can talk about <laughs> I, I would love to do more re- I, all i know is a little bit about what the epcot city would have actually been like but it sounds i think we're having a future episode on that yeah so. oh yeah yeah <laughs> uh, but i mean compared to this okay so like a bus system, uh, rapid bus transit, yes. 45,000 people per hour can get and move around on that. And you know how fast a bus can move, you know, maybe with without lights, if it has a dedicated lane, 50 yeah. miles an hour plus. Yeah, you can really you can really move. I mean, if you watch the movie Speed, a uh, documentary of buses, I believe it can <laughs> go uh, over 55 miles per hour all the time. Yeah. Isn't oh, no. In fact, it's it's critical to the safety of the, yeah. the passengers on board. It's a very uh, innovative system. Uh and you look at the subway system, and I think if you look at, I think, New York or Hong Kong, they can move in this you know big system 100,000 people an hour. On the on a, me- 
a bus metro or the metro metro we're talking about on an underground um, system? I, I think uh, I th- I'm looking at the Hong Kong subway system. Okay, and I think yeah. that moves a hundred thousand people per hour, uh, and that, that's 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 pretty that's pretty good. Uh, I mean, the Hyperloop's looking to move eight hundred and forty per hour. Consider that there's twenty five thousand yeah. employees at Apple. Yes. Consider how far this can go. Um, so. They are not working with Muskie himself. Uh, they're working with a company called Hyperloop TT, Hyperloop Transportation Technologies, mm. uh, run by a person named Dick Alborn, or he's the CEO. Uh, and this is something, and I believe there's never been this, but they're trying to work on a suburban model of, of tiny Hyperloops. <laughs> Which, mm. uh, and here is the goal. The goal is they're going to take Stevens Creek Boulevard, and they're going to take the median, which is currently unused, and either built an elevated path for a hyperloop, or perhaps maybe they'll do something different, like use automated cars running in this median. <laughs> so you're describing a traditional street-level tram system, yeah, or an incredibly expensive one. That's, but I mean, hey, that's super fast. I yeah. doubt that it could even get up to top speed. Like, how far? Are yep. your stations like more than a mile apart? Are they less than a mile apart? Like yeah, so the uh, I believe the Hyperloop TT has never made a Hyperloop. They've never made anything that works. I think they've made scale model. Like there's that yeah. student competition. I remember when I was in college, I was hearing about <laughs> the Hyperloop student competition. They're trying to get college students to to do engineering ideas for them, which is you know it's which is cute, but. Does it mean that you don't have engineers? Perhaps was the was the suspicion. I think Virgin is the only people who've made a working, basically mm. actual passenger model. Yeah, yeah. And for like for showing it off, two hundred and forty miles an hour is what it can do. So trains well, can do that though. Yeah, I mean it's 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 slower than the ideal hyperloop. But then again, you're talking about suburban travel, which is of course like sixteen miles. Well, if you're within a city. You don't need to go 200 miles an hour. High-speed rails are for getting between cities. Yeah, I mean, basically, if you need to get between L.A. and the Bay Area, you have a problem here. You need to go fast. Yeah, through a lot of places where you don't want to stop. Here's a different problem. You want to go from where you live to where you work in the Apple spaceship. Yeah. What is the solution for that? Is the solution, okay, live farther and farther apart and then build these incredible, incredible systems or is the solution, hey, maybe we should make it legal for you to live close to work? Yeah, it's it's absolutely like that. That's why this 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 boondoggle attracts attracts NIMBY City Council so much because it gives them this. Oh wow, someone else can build it. Someone else can pay for it, and it means people won't have to live in my town. Like it, it kicks the can down the road. Yes, and says exactly. We can, we can. So uh, and, yeah, a billion dollar each kick. Yeah, this would cost billions and billions of dollars yes. to build a hyperloop on Stevens Creek Boulevard, yes. which only works because they have a devoted median which is ready to go. Just build <laughs> like I just this is this is just the silliest thing to me like okay, between cities whatever. That's a different that's a different topic, but just build regular elevated rail like Chicago style or New York style elevated rail anywhere in the world that has elevated rail the technology these elevated rails have been around for 100 years. You can put them on the median like in my opinion, that like the biggest problem with building any transit system, of course, is getting the right of way, especially in the Bay Area. Yeah. But we have this wonderful city grid, especially in San Jose, with super, super, super wide streets. If you annexed a lane or just the median of some super big streets, like El Camino in a lot of places had a, has a median, like why waste tons and tons of money on these like direct hyperloop routes where now you've spent a billion dollars and all you can do is get between Apple and downtown San Jose, like. 
Well, I think it, it, it just seems like you're dealing with all these people distracted by flashy little things. Yeah. There's a question. We need to make our cities work so that people can get around and live and work and blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. and things. And they were saying, okay, 9.4 million we can get per year. And then they were basically said, okay, let's, on the same night, let's, you know, put this aside. But we believe we can have heavily subsidized investment by the tech companies into the Hyperloop system, which is like billions of dollars. Yes. If you consider if they are not willing to pay the head tax of $10 million a year, what are the chances they're going to defray much of the costs of a billion-plus-dollar system? It's insane. Yeah. It's like they're, it's not going to basically pencil out. And you're talking about like build classic-style L trains. I mean, I do not consider myself an expert, but something which I think clearly would have a huge difference in throughput. Let's say you take El Camino and you take one lane and you must be a bus to be on it. That would be great. I mean, that would like, and it would make it a pain to drive up and down El Camino. It sure would. And here's the thing. That's a <laughs> take, good thing. Take some of thing. that parking on El Camino. Yeah. Take off some of that parking. Local businesses would hate it. And you have 20 towns full of angry local business owners, angry homeowners, people yeah. angry about the noise, people angry about change. And that's what you'll get. But because these are the people that are in power yeah. are not the people that take buses. Yes. That's the problem with buses is that they have they have this image of being lower class, which they are, but people who allocate money for buses and people who show up at city council and talk make the laws and talk about transit, they don't really they often don't take the bus. Oh well, yeah. Homeowners usually they don't take the bus. They don't like it. It seems beneath them. They prefer trains because trains have this image trains of trains are of, sexy. Yes, trains are sexy. They have this image of glamour and upper class. Hyperloops are incredibly sexy. They're incredible. They're like trains, except so even dumber. Even dumber. They have yeah. this air still of like you're being a good, you're being a good transit enthusiast. You're maybe even like this this socialist air that comes around. You know, mass transit trains. Except actually, Hyperloop has no air. <laughs> exactly. It has no air, and it has no. There's nothing socialist about it. It's a boondoggle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think here is like the the basic problem is a place like Cupertino. The bug, which is the fact that people can't live close to work because because yeah. they they don't have enough housing close to work. Yeah. Because and people, it's illegal to build it. Yeah. That's a feature for a lot of homeowners who mm-hmm. now have equity of three four million dollars because now if you want to sell your house, you have a lot of extremely motivated buyers. Yes. Who are Apple employees? Absolutely. <laughs> that's extremely attractive, and everyone and like. Everybody from people who are looking to, you know, just just sell, you know, rent existing units. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that people would want to keep things from changing. Not the least of which is just simple nostalgia. And yes, well, and nostalgia, but also fear, fear of change. I'd yeah. say it like there is a, there is a NIMBY ideology. It is you find it in a lot of people, and it has certain traits to it. One of which is is just absolute is fear of change, fear of new people, yeah. fear of old things going away and new things coming up and like the the financial part of it is 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 that as well like oh what about my view that view is worth that view is worth a half million well i think we need to we've we've previously we've made laws saying like you're entitled to your view no one can block your view but i think that's just not in the public good i really think it's not like we could afford we could afford that back when you know cost of living was cheap and you could give these these gimmies these giveaways to you know, people that you wanted to throw a bone to in your electorate. But I think all of these 
these protectionist and these protectionist NIMBY measures that we've put in the laws over the last 40, 50 years, I think they got to go. And I think the sentiments that keep them going also have to go. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of crazy. Even the best of cases, even when, you know, you're just trying to, even before zoning, let's say you want to lay an aqueduct, like you're doing things like when Mulholland was yeah. sucking water. He had to, like, secretly buy up a bunch of land, you know. It's always hard when you're trying to negotiate rights of way. Yes. But the f- zoning makes it a million times harder. Yes, zoning and going through all these little local municipalities, like... When you look at the, one of my, a thing that I do sometimes, like once, a, maybe even once a month, is I go on Google Maps and I look at the, the track that the aqueduct lays through from the Pulgas Water Temple oh, yeah. on the other side of 280. I've never visited the, the temple, have you? I've never visited it. I feel like I should. You have to go on a weekday. Oh, oh it's closed on the weekends? I believe. Ah, okay, well. Watching the path, it cuts through some of the most expensive and ritzy towns all the way through. And you can see it because the... It, the right-of-way has been set aside, has been kept from buildings being built on top of it, but there's parking lot, there's parks, there's church church gardens and blah, 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 community gardens running through this, this unbroken and clearly visible from the satellite, but invisible from the street, hmm. strip running all the way down to the pumping station at the edge of the bay. I'm just thinking, watching that, how that's the lifeblood of, of Silicon Valley and, and San Francisco, and just how much of it absolute apocalypse it would be to try to build that right now like to get that strip of land that's impossible yeah that's 20 feet wide and 10 miles long through some of the most expensive land in the country and this is like this is the the public resource that everybody lives off of but trying to build another one would be nearly impossible with the system we have and we're straining at the limits right now you talk about a reason a practical reason you can't scale your city not just people's sentiment but a practical reason where would the if we doubled the population where would the double water come from they can't go through these pipes. So I, I would say, I mean, not to kind of overstate the importance of this, but does this scare you? Here's here's a quote by the guy who runs the Hyperloop TT company, uh, Dirk Alborn. He says, democracy isn't friendly to projects like these. <laughs> it's not. like well, but, <laughs> And he says, if you want to do this, there's tedious right-of-way issues. China and Russia, someone powerful is going to make it work for you. Well, in America, in the New Deal era, someone powerful made it work for you too. But it, like when the California Water Project was being made, I that is a section of California land use that, like damming up Hetch Hetchy, for instance, you could not do that now. Well, it, maybe. Took, it took someone powerful, in, yeah. also in the absence, it used to be easier back then, there wasn't as much legislation to cut through. Now you'd need a dictatorial strongman to get a project done. Back then... It was, you know, the hand of the government saying this is the right thing to do for the people in these growing metropolitan areas. It's clearly a need, and it w- and it was gotten done. Now you would need a, a dictator's powers because there's there's all these there's all these laws to cut through. It's not the 30s anymore. Yeah, but it makes you. It just makes it sound like we have a dichotomy here. We can have our completely catastrophic democracy, which looks like this. It looks like Cupertino homeowners. It looks like everything that's broken around us. Or we could have a clean, you know, dictatorship, like, you know, I mean, effectively, like you have in China or like Russia. I mean, I mean, not technically, but I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's kind of saying that there is no way we can work better within a democratic system. We have to either throw it all out, (laughs) which is kind of really scary. And I think it's very easy to see how this has led to kind of the rise of things like, you know, fascism of saying like, oh yeah, capitalism and a democratic system doesn't work. 
let's throw that all out and just have, you know, really powerful interactions. Well, it's some people's temptation to throw it all out. But I yeah. think, I mean, I think you can have, I think you can have a just and benevolent democratic state, but that uses tools like eminent domain more aggressively for the public good in cases where it's warranted and yeah. uses these these tools. Because that eminent domain used to be the short circuit to get around the utter nightmare that it is to run projects like this. They're and the state about... used to use it freely and abundantly, and now they almost never use it. Well, part of it is the people who control the levers, mm -hmm. they are basically a privileged feudal class. And if they are eminent domained off, they're basically, it's like you know, to the cornfield. They just yeah. disappear. They're gone forever. So, I mean, it's not something you treat lightly. It's like, oh, it's hey, really not. And every, hey, Bill, you can get yeah. a new place. It's like, no, we choose you. Mm -hmm. You are destroyed. Palo yeah. Alto was talking about eminent domain for- uh, For like, the split-level crossings. Exactly. And they say like, okay, we realize this is a non-starter because basically you are just saying- your incredible privilege, which is you are one of the chosen people who can continue to be here, we're going to blow it up. Which is a way of just saying that it's it's an exclusive club in which people who are in can never get back in again. Well, it's an existential threat to the homeowner class. It is. Yeah. Just to see it used anywhere, even in a neighboring city. I would not be surprised if people, like that is a, that is a red alert of the highest order for a homeowner is to see eminent domain being used to seize part or all of a property with, you know, quote-unquote compensation. I mean, in the best of cases, it's it's a crude and sloppy and arbitrary system. I and mean, there's reasons I think that things like, you know, a higher land tax would do better things in eminent domain yes. because it kind of, it basically says, instead of saying, okay, you hold on to it, but maybe we'll come and snatch it, it's more pay for your use of land all the time. Yes. And if we want to build right away, well, we know how much it's worth. And yeah. yeah. Well, in my opinion, the structure is the important part. The structure is where you live and do business. The structure should be the important part. And the land is something that, you know, needs to be used preciously. In my opinion, if you if you get your land seized under eminent domain, you can't just keep building single-family homes. You can't give someone an identical single-family home somewhere else in town. You can't just give that to them because you can't build more of them. So you can't give someone equal compensation for the land and, and structure that they've lost in the same town. We've, we've, we've lost the ability to keep doing that. Yeah. And if you really do say you can buy back in Palo Alto, it becomes just impossibly high to do anything because the cost is tremendous. Yeah, like uh, these these property this like the what property rights have become in 2018, what they have become not just in law but also in how people understand them and how people throw that term around property rights. Like it's so twisted and weird and has so little to do with the common good and so much to do with these like small time landowners and their and their investment and every other thing and people will even use the term property will even throw around property rights when it comes to getting their neighbor to stop doing something like if a, if a neighbor is 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 widening their garage or something like that that'll be a reason to yell about property rights in city council and try and get your neighbor to stop doing something so I'd like to uh, do a, a sideline here on a Palo Alto issue, the present hotel. Yes. Uh, uh, this is something that's been going on for a while. It's, it's affecting people right here at KZSU, um, but it is basically a 
it's an apartment building called a hotel. Used to be a hotel 60 years ago, but it's yeah, been a apartment. when it was built uh, forever ago, exactly. Yeah, but now a, a large company has basically bought it out with the idea to turn it back to a hotel. The, the Carlisle Group or something it's like, like a- that. It's like AJ Capital yeah, or yeah, something. Rather, yeah, you're right. Something you're right. like that. Yeah. One of these slick capital groups that has some mission statement on their website. They were formed after the financial crisis, probably because the rich people figured out this was a great time to buy undervalued properties and uh, squeeze a little bit more from the renter class. That's all I'm saying about that. Yeah. So, I mean, and basically people are looking, let's not evict everyone here. Let's get the city to stop this conversion to a hotel. Yeah, because that, that's exactly what's going on. It's, it is permitted as a living structure, it, but there's still remnants in the zoning and permitting about it being a hotel. So this company bought it and they want to simply revert to the old usage yeah. as a hotel so that they could renovate it as a luxury hotel for you know Stanford donor dads. They're going to make more money. Yeah, yeah exactly. They're going to make a, a whole pile of money. And there was like a, in the law at least or in how people understood it could be there's a really short and ministerial process for getting that approved because it was already zoned as a hotel and it was... Like, I forget the exact verbiage, but it was either like an exception or some kind of twisting of the zoning to get it be run as a residence. But that hotel thing is still on the books. And they were hoping to use that to get a quick repermitting as a hotel and kick everyone out. Yeah. But they have this AJ Capital or whatever. They have a, a right to run yeah. it as a hotel. And yeah, that's basically, they have a right. Yeah, they have a right. Uh, and, uh, and I think the current thing, they originally were saying, like, there's nothing to do about it. Now they're kind of looking at these things saying, they because the city, the, city, yeah. the staff, is saying, oh, it's actually grandfathered in as a residential, mm. and this would be an improper thing, and we're actually not letting you turn in the hotel. Good. And then the, the, the capital company... Uh, very cl- in a very classy move, is saying, "Okay, well, fair enough. We're going to evict these people anyway," <laughs> <laughs> which is just holy god. And just well, let the building sit empty, just to spite the city. Like we've done our damage. Yeah, because I think basically we're saying it's like, well, you you want to save these people. If we kill them, I mean, if we basically just disappear them, then okay, then you'll probably give up. Yeah, like <laughs> this village is under the king's protection, and the Mongols burn the village down anyway, and they say, "Now what?" Yeah, I mean, that's it's it's. I mean, I think. It's smart. It's awful. It shows how things are so screwed up. Yes. Uh, and it shows what these, like, when a big developer actually comes to town, this is what happens. A, it's not some b- big developer, evil developer trying to build, like, like a condo or, like, a townhouse. People will show up and protest, like, oh, the big money, the big developer, the real estate industry. This is the real estate industry. This is big money. This is some capital group coming in and evicting people just as a bargaining move. This is what it looks like. I mean, it doesn't look like it doesn't look like someone trying to build like a little apartment building on a plot of infill land. This is what evil money looks like, and it's come to town. And people didn't. It, it, I think it, it's shocking to me that people were are so they're living in their own world, and then when this actually happens, they're 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 falling flat on their face. I mean, it's it's very easy to kind of look at, okay, when things change, all these evil people move in and develop things. But even if you make it illegal to change anything, it, there's still going to be a lot of evil people who move yes. in and make money. Even if you make it illegal to build, this gigantic pool of amoral money yes. is still going to come in and do a lot of havoc. Yeah, and they found this, This it's, I mean, I wouldn't call it a loophole. It's, it's sort of working as intended. Like, oh, we'll just, we'll just modify the zoning slightly to allow use as residential. Like, if there hadn't been a big public outcry, this would have been a ministerial conversion. M- getting rid of housing is ministerial, but adding new housing is a nightmare, uh, conditional 
review or uh, discretionary review process. That's that's the process that we've made that we've chosen, and this is the outcome. I mean, the you could not build a present hotel today. You absolutely could not, the, and that's the, my the, point. The setbacks, you yeah. know, the lack of parking. Yes, the no parking. <laughs> Listeners, this this building is, I think, what six, seven stories tall, maybe more. It's tall. It's taller than yeah. the Palo Alto height limit. So there's a ding. It doesn't fit with the neighborhood's character because the neighborhood, the character of University Avenue is like Apple stores and glitzy glam, and it's like a nice old building. doesn't fit with the character. Yeah. It's right up against the property lines on all sides, yeah. no setback, and absolutely no dedicated parking spots. And that's why these are cheap apartments. You can rent a studio in Palo Alto for thirteen, fifteen hundred dollars That's about what these little studio apartments were going for yeah. in the President Hotel. And that's why this group of people has attracted so much public attention, because people are ashamed to see you know, their kids' piano teacher and grandmas, single, single old folks, people on fixed incomes, like law students, stuff like that, losing their place to live in Palo Alto. It's one of the last places a like normal person could live. And yes. we're looking at, like, let's make affordable... It's naturally affordable, <laughs> as they say. Let's make affordable housing. It's like, okay, you know, door number one is like some, you know, tech guru who has a new company that has like self-drying cement and like a robot constructs yeah. a house. Let's and... 3D print homes. So oh, that's the solution. Like, oh, I think we're going to fix it. It's like, no, like, let's say, how about we don't mandate parking? It's yeah. like, that might Gosh. work. That might actually make things cheaper. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> but that's not on the table. Yeah. I mean, everyone wants, like, people would love it if an app solved the housing crisis. They would love that because it would be through technology. You wouldn't have to change it. That's what people pursue. They, they pursue these solutions that don't need them to sacrifice anything or need any investment. It's, it's a land use problem. Yeah. It's, it's so much, it's a, such a problem that, that software types are not used to thinking about and that homeowners are actively working against being in the narrative. Like they, they absolutely do not want these, these questions to be raised like, oh, like tiny homes are the future. But when it comes to setting aside a plot of land in our town for them, you know, that's a separate story entirely. I mean, if it, yeah, if it's boring and makes sense, but it takes a little bit of sacrifice, oh, well, that's that's unrealistic. That's I mean, why I like Georgianism so much, because that's what it is. It's, 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 it's boring and simple, but... It takes a little bit of, like, just reasonable sacrifice. If, if you own, you know, a big, you know, luxurious plot in the center of town... Maybe you should actually keep in mind it's actually a pretty valuable thing that yes. is reasonable to share. And you know, most people like if yeah, most people don't have millions and millions of dollars of equity and land they're not using. Well, yeah. but some people do, and let's figure out how to do this better. But I just like this. I was like, what I do when I hate myself is I read the Palo Alto Online comment oh, section. Oh no! So on this, okay. So now I'm talking about. Because they're saying we're going to evict these people anyway, and I feel this is worth getting into in more depth. But this is just the mile high pass, and they're talking about an emergency ordinance to stop the evictions, uh, which is like that's I think in a reasonable thing to do on its face. Yes, <laughs> but people are talking about rights and just basically, and some people are just. The request by the renters for an emergency ordinance from the city is horrible. Whatever happened to taking personal responsibility for your own living situation? Oh, my God. The ownership company has given them several months' notice. Time to find yourself new living accommodations. Stop looking for the city for help. This is <laughs> this is conservatism. This is like... I am so tired of so many people in our society looking for the government to bail them out. These are people who are bailed out by Prop 13. To the yes. We have $4 million of equity. Yes. And I don't pay property taxes. Yes. But I can... It's yeah. like... These are... Like this is like this is right libertarianism. Yes, is I mean, what it is. But, just property but rights. Living in subsidized housing. Everyone who posts, like, I would love to see the 
the eight, like the prop 13 savings next to everyone's <laughs> names who post yeah. on Palo Alto, for me it would be zero. Yeah. For this guy, it would be... Well, it, you, he could be saving $30,000 a year or something, yeah. depending on his property taxes. Yes, I mean, this is the whole thing. The the property rights rhetoric, it just, it's so, like, morally vacant in the fact that if you own the right kind of property, which when you own it... Like, which you bought at the right time. Which you bought at the right time. And this is just like, you know, the Jane Austen, you know, people live in these big manors and make money yes. not doing anything. All these people own a bunch of serfs in Russia. Like the same thing now. If you have the property rights to say, I own this, like it's like, okay, that's that's right and good. And if you don't, then you know, then you are basically being a taken care of by society. But if you're the people whose society is ensuring your property rights to get all this equity and and for for free, that's that's natural. And like what was Prop 13? It was a bunch of angry people looking for like looking to make the government give them a handout. That's what Prop 13 was. And now we get this But I want to pay a lot. Yeah. (laughs) So it's just insane on its face. And here's like the bigger thing, going back to the Hyperloop, like maybe not the bigger thing, but just how it ties in is... They're looking to build the Hyperloop on existing municipal property, which is, say, Stevens Creek Boulevard okay. median. And like, okay, there's not a lot of this, but let's squeeze out what makes it work. When Elon Musk was talking about building his own subway system in Los Angeles. Oh the, the car sled subway <laughs> yeah, it's, that it's, I'm sure would have a terrible throughput as compared to. It's ridiculous. But he says, like, okay, I'm going to do it all under municipal streets. And here's the thing. The cities have been selling off their 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 lands and assets. Yeah, and they can't. For decades. And they can't buy it back. Yeah, it it is reason- it's a terrible deal. <laughs> it's reasonable on his face that a city to do the infrastructure it needs needs to control the land it uses to build things like transit systems. You need to make sure a city can actually use it without going bankrupt. Yes, and that's what stuff like eminent domain was. But now we see it's either politically or economically infeasible. Yeah, we need to look at stronger solutions such as getting rid of Prop 13 and instituting things like land taxes. Just make it possible for cities to build the infrastructure they need. Yes. Is this a political non-starter? People say, "Oh, you're dreaming," but I think it's a simple necessity of running a city in a sane way today. Well, here it is. Here's here's a way I have of thinking about it that I've I found makes sense when you apply it to a lot of governance problems in California. Well, like you said, it's this is more or less a city problem. This is more or less a problem that on, you only find within cities. But it would be a, pro, a policy that would be deeply unpopular out in the country yeah. and deeply unpopular for most of the landowners way out in the boonies. In my opinion, policies like these, like if we were to expand eminent domain or something like that, it would have to take place within a newly defined administrative boundary that is the greater Los Angeles area and the greater San Francisco Bay, San Francisco Bay area and maybe Sacramento or Fresno. Like big cities that have to solve city problems should be administered differently. And if these are policies that would be deeply unpopular out in the country, make them not apply out in the country. Like yeah. was, California is such a big and diverse and it's such a big and diverse state full of different people with different needs. We should apply these laws differently to where they're needed because this is like like try like trying to build transit with like the same set of laws in very different places in the city in the country. It's facing a disaster all over, and there's not one solution for every type of land that we will have to solve these problems for. 
Yeah, I mean, this is this is just a this is a personal thing. Me thinking about administrate these cities differently, administrate their land use differently. Like make it clear to 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 ex urban and rural property owners that you are not the it's, target. You, it's not about you. Trust me. I don't wake up at night thinking about what's happening in Susanville. You know, yeah. it's, it doesn't matter. I mean, here's the thing too. I was uh, there's one uh, article I was just reading uh, about. Uh, Bill Saley, one of one of the remaining California Republicans, saying hmm. we need to protect Prop 13. You know, we need to blame the Democrats for for this housing crisis, but we need to protect uh, Prop 13. Well, <laughs> great conversation on the importance of discussing the importance of protecting Prop 13 and keeping housing affordable in California. Um, so, well, because to people who live out in rural or exurban areas, that is kind of still what it looks like. Yeah, I mean, he's to in, them. this guy is from Riverside, California. Yeah, and f- fair, like fairly low density everywhere. Exactly. Trust me, I don't really care about Prop 13 where you are. Yeah, I would say I really don't. I mean, honestly, I'd say that we should have. If our city is from Prop 13, that's what matters. The property value of Riverside land is trivial. I don't care about your land, but it's a. It's a necessity, yes. morally, and just a sense of of survivability. Is a sense of just running an ecological system that Palo Alto cannot have Prop 13. Yes. They have. It's insane to have Prop 13 in California. Yes, it's or, a, just for, the the drain on the public good <laughs> is unbelievable. You couldn't put it to a dollar value. Yeah. The 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 horrifying waste of not just the waste of money that's not being levied in fair tax from these these plots, but just the the appalling waste of land yeah. and uh, and public use, public and private use that it should be put to just the waste and preferential treatment of the lucky few is appalling and it should appall a democrat it should appall a republican it should appall a left libertarian and a right libertarian the system that this like it's just it's a it's a feudalism it's a a system of small landowners and the lucky few that are benefiting it, to the to the incredible detriment of the poor, the middle class, small business, big business, government, everyone is losing on this except for the, the, the big landholders. Everyone is losing. Yeah, and if you talk about like what is actually getting people like outraged, I mean, if you talk to the fact that you know Apple has a $1 trillion market cap, it's kind of, it's, it, it does bother me that we're, we're in a winner-take-all system in which a company Increasingly, can, can, exactly. can get this big. But is Apple directly responsible for the misery of all these people, you know, here in, in the Bay Area for I certain? I don't think so. I don't so. think so. I really don't think so. The system could be working in a way that Apple gaining doesn't have to come at the detriment of others. This land use policy that we have has made it a zero-sum game. Absolutely. If you yeah. can't build, and then this is zero-sum behavior. This is the rich in a zero-sum game. What they take has to come at the expense of the poor because we can't expand under the law. And, and this is in the idea that politically we cannot do the necessary reforms. So instead, we have like the mayor of Cupertino meeting yeah. with Hyperloop TT to look at a billion-dollar system to have an incredibly insufficient Hyperloop system possibly be talked about, yes. but mostly to basically just wipe it clean and say, you know, it's 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 yeah, it's Pontius piloting. It's you know, you just <laughs> you wash your hands. I tried my best. You know, we tried to get this Hyperloop system. Oh yeah, there's some kinks with it. It's like, did you really do anything to possibly make anything work better at all. Yeah. No, you did not. No yeah. one is actually trying to be pragmatic and looking at solutions here. Absolutely not, because pragmatism involves sacrifice. And anyone with power in around here has a lot of sacrifice to make. It would be deeply unpopular for them to call for their constituents to, to do that sacrifice. So they don't call for it. That's because renters are not well represented enough. And it's a chicken and an egg problem. For renters to be better represented in all these towns, 
they would need to have more rental housing and they don't. It's illegal to build it. Yeah. So the people that are best represented by this, non-landowners, renting, renting, renting residents, they can't become more well-represented. So it's just the small club of people promoting cartel behavior and all these terrible, terrible decisions with economics and transit. Here's one more of your wrinkle to consider. People who rent are disproportionately likely to be non-citizens. Yeah. So, so yes. they, they face the consequences yes, of bad policy, vote. but they can't vote on their old city council people yes. who are strangling them. Yes. <laughs> Just like people that, you know, who work in Mountain View at, say, your Googles, but come in from Oakland or San, Jose, San Francisco or San Jose, they can't vote in the town they work in that has arguably a bigger impact on all these traffic, land use worries than the city they live in, even. Yeah. They can't vote in that city. That city is not represented by them because the city's not allowing them to become residents. The city's the city's disenfranchising people by not letting them even come and take a place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. If you if you keep people out long enough that they can't possibly be part of the political system, then you solved it. You've yes. <laughs> you've erased them. And yeah, like if you ignore and tolerate immigration, illegal immigration. And, and accept the fruits of the labor of the people that are coming and laboring in your country. Yeah. And, you know, just pretend not to look at them, you know, but don't offer a good path to citizenship, which is kind of what yeah. the deal has been since the Clinton days for illegal immigration to this country. Like, it's like a don't, bit of it, like a don't ask, don't tell, like accepting the enormous fruits of economic productivity. And now looking to restrict legal immigration. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, <laughs> how I mean, it's changed since 2016, yeah. I mean, we don't need to go into that. It's, yeah. But it's kind of like the cities are accepting the fruits of people of this regional wonders of, of economy without giving these people representation or accepting changes to the system that would benefit those at the bottom or the middle. I mean, and it takes a really awful abstraction. Look at this Palo Alto comments section to yes. say, because of property rights, oh these people deserve nothing and I deserve everything. Yes. It takes a twisted mind to say, let's look at abstraction and let's basically, uh, you know, just tolerate yes. human suffering. And it takes a twisted system to reward that commenter yeah. who's sitting at home drinking tea and getting, you know, angry at people on online. <laughs> well, there's people who are working two jobs that are commuting two hours a day each way to to try and eke out a living under this system. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and... I mean, it's, 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 it's hard. I mean, it's hard to say that, you know, we will get enough kind of clear thinking to say how we will make the system work for, for people just makes sense. Because we're talking about like simple problems. This is a simple technical problem of how do we move people about and house them to work at places. And yes. people are just completely yeah. unwilling to, yeah. to do something which is a, even a technical fix yeah. like, bus, like bus lanes yeah. or even something which costs more like rail lines. I mean, this is something yeah. which is not feasible. And you know, how are you actually going to make sure we actually have a society where people like just – don't get unearned equity at the cost of other people's misery. We have spent 40 years building a society that does the opposite. Yeah. We have been actively working towards that. And it's through the and now there's these people with this incredible interest in seeing the system the status quo continue. Yeah. They have a huge financial interest in it. They want to say they saying no to everything is the comfortable thing and the thing that probably rewards them financially. But the President Hotel has become kind of a popular cause in Palo Alto, even beyond people who are normally, you know, progressives on housing policy. And it's because a couple of people that would normally be NIMBYs, yeah. I would think, are speaking in f in favor of the residents. 
because they have a bit of human sympathy for these people, Nimbi- and because it would, it, this is also seeing the city change. And this is what I wanted to say in public comment, but didn't quite get my um, my words around it. Is that th- there's popular uproar about the president stopping the president hotel change in Palo Alto because people love to say no to things. People NIMBYs love to say no to things. They love to say no to any kind of change. This is a situation in which saying no to change is also the the has is, is the humanist thing to do. Is sure. is the is the pro is the good thing for the poor. This is this is the way in which NIMBYs can say, no change, no change, city, stop it now, and be kind of on the right side morally. That's why this cause has become so popular. But these people need to remember that saying no got us here. And the next time there's something on the ballot to which the right thing for the housing situation to say is yes, yeah. these people need to remember that. You need to remember that if you if you permit you know, another president hotel or another five, another couple of buildings like this, losing one wouldn't be a big deal. I think people should be able to do what they want within the limits of the law with their property, including, you know, it would, this would not be such a sad situation if the people in the president hotel can move across the street for the same rent. Yeah. I wouldn't matter. I'd be like, oh, sorry. I mean, it's, it's a shame that you have to move, but it's a shame because they have to leave the town and they can't come back and there's nowhere else like it. That's the shame. Yeah. And these NIMBYs have to like this is exactly this is what I wish I could have said in front of the city council. Like, remember this the next time you can say yes to something instead of saying no. Like, it's fun to say no, and you love saying no right now, and it means you're on the moral side. But think of the moral side next time instead of just rejecting change. Yeah, it's 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 a trolley problem in a way. If you take the direct change to cause people to be harmed, yeah. the, you taking action is people flinch at that but yes. if through your inaction more people are harmed it's like oh that doesn't matter as as much yeah and uh it's like every time it was like it was like them on their tracks on the tracks or like their sense of palo alto on the tracks 30 years ago and every time they pulled the lever to hit you know five five renters 20 years later yeah but there's also it's a time and abstraction thing you don't see those people tied to the tracks it's invisible it's completely invisible <laughs> yeah there's it, no loss to you that you can see i mean every person who's in palo alto has the moral weight of everyone commuting in wasting hours of their day if they live in town because like they refuse to let them live here yes and, and they don't they just don't think about that they're like oh there's just traffic oh i hate the traffic I mean, I, ho- I hope that they have trouble sleeping at night because the commute that they are costing other people should come out of their lives. They don't think about it and they don't care and they just curse the people who are in the car alongside theirs yeah. when they're trying to get across town or do something in Palo Alto because you can't walk anywhere. And that's why traffic and parking have become these these things that the NIMBYs yell about so much is because if you build your cities like this, if you resist the 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 force to expand your city it's going to stress these like these are the the resources that that the nimbys use that everyone else also uses that become thinner as more people are trying to use your your city and you're fighting over these scarce resources you're not planning to build more and that's why it becomes the focal point for these people parking and traffic and blah, 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 blah. progress and preservation is yeah. progress always good no it can be very bad is preservation sure always bad no it's often very good but the, you need to take good preservation coupled with good progress yes you can't basically excise progress at all yes. because when you do it it becomes 
you know, a very cruel rationing over a very limited supply yes. of things. Well, and that's what happened when they shut down the redevelopment agencies. It was something that was deeply politically unpopular. That was a that was a big piggy bank to break open. It's the first thing Brown did when he became governor. He in a very popular political move and very wise financial or very lucrative financial result, he 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 cracked open the redevelopment agencies, and California lost its biggest tool for progress. A lot of redevelopment projects in the seventies and eighties, knocking down the Fillmore district and building big gross highways through poor neighborhoods were not good, were rightly protested, and were rightly stopped. But the pendulum has swung too far where we've been. For preservation, like uh, dogmatically for preservation and dogmatically against any kind of progress. Yeah. Because the 70s was the right time to have that sentiment. And that the pendulum has swung too far. It is the wrong thing to feel and the wrong thing to do right now. Well, and it's always the case when you have like eminent domain and arbitrary ways to, to allow things to happen, you're always going to harm the people who are most politically vulnerable. And I think unless you have value capture, which is falls fairly on everybody it should affect, yes. that's a chance that you will make sure that yes. it isn't just this incredibly regressive means of, of, of dealing with it. Yes. And we talk about what is value capture here? We have basically negative value capture. When the economy grows, landowners become very, very rich, and renters and other people who are landless become very, very squeezed. Well, and they, even the city becomes squeezed. Providing basic services, yes. hiring workers, the city itself becomes squeezed. Yes, because they're largely landless. Yes. <laughs> it's insane. We have yes. landless cities. Well, and at the... Co- at the base of doing anything, even paying for any service is the cost of land. All those workers are having to draw a higher wage because they need to pay their rent. The city needs to buy land to do things. They need to they need to pay the rent. They need to pay the price. High land prices are at the core of all of this dysfunction. And then it spreads even more abstract political dysfunction. Like when people who are a little bit on the right, who are center-rightists or, or rightists or something, they're like, oh, why does it cost so much for the government to do anything? The government government can't do anything. Why are they paying BART workers $120,000? Like $120,000 a year is a living wage. People who work on BART should be a living wage. My attack is the, the living wage should not be $120,000. Yes. And let's attack that. Like yeah. we should, if, you, if you just keep paying people more... That money, it just flows right into the landlord's pockets because there's no elasticity of supply for places to live. It's a it, the money just just flows out of the city and flows out of public projects into the pockets of landowners, and it's not captured back through proper taxation, like you were saying. Yeah, so let's. I mean, we're talking about the kind of indirect value capture. If a place like Apple has a bunch of business, let's tax them with a head tax about $10 million a year. And I mean, it's a very roundabout way to have any kind of value capture, yeah. as opposed to, like, not to say, like, Apple's off the hook. They also own land, and I am always willing to attack landowners. Uh, and this is, I think, the funniest <laughs> thing. This is 2015, uh, basically a f- 2015, I think, appeal that uh, one cluster of properties that Apple owns, the city's assessing it for $1 billion. Oh, the assessor of that article, yes. <laughs> yeah, and I think $1 billion, usually things are underassessed. I mean, I believe it's probably the land, probably itself, for more than a $1 billion. I don't know how much a property is on top of it. but Yeah, like, what's land around here? A million dollars? an acre roughly i mean i easily believe a cluster of properties they have cluster billi- of properties yeah. billion dollars easy if it's a thousand acres it could easily be a billion dollars and apple says oh we don't want to pay tax on a on a billion dollars uh how about 200 
$200. Yeah. Not, not $200 million. $200 is their yes. appeal. And their idea is, oh, we're going to tie them from court and then we'll basically just, hopefully they'll just say, we don't want your, oh, it's fine. We'll, yeah, we'll it's literally, <laughs> it's worth so much money. And there is a system for them to legally keep appealing this that it is absolutely, yeah. it's worth a ton of money to keep this tied up. And the city doesn't have the, and like, that's the thing. It's not, dic- I don't think it should be like that, that guy, whatever the Hyperloop guy is saying, democracy isn't friendly to projects like this. Democracy isn't friendly to getting rich people to pay their share either because yeah. the rich people have too much power. They, they tend to control democracies. And yes. That's, that's, and a, that's a very good argument to make sure companies don't get they too control big. the process. Yes. Like they've gotten so big and they have lawyers on call filing appeal after appeal. They control the process. Yes. And if we have <laughs> dicta- dictatorial level powers that are being used to extract fair value and check the power of rich individuals and companies, I don't think we should call that dictatorial. I think it's bad branding. We'll work on work on that. Get a workshop. I should call that good governments. I should call that progressive. Call it fair. Yes, I don't know. call it progressive. Yeah, and uh, and I should mention they have a billion and they have another three hundred eighty-four million dollar. Yes. Also two hundred dollars. Yes. So it's insane. Uh, value capture is absolutely essential. We don't have it. So I, I think that's the central question of you know value capture. You know when an economy is as great as this. It needs to actually benefit people and yes. not make life miserable. Yes. And and unfortunately, it's doing a great job making life miserable and not doing anything to make anything work. Yes. And we could do an indirect way, such as taxing the companies themselves. And, I mean, it's not unreasonable on its face because they are getting a lot of public benefit, but not nearly as much as the landowners directly are. And for some reason, we live in a world in which yes. that is... Well, that's a Band-Aid, too. Like, if corporate tax was working the way it should be, if property tax was working the way it should be, we wouldn't have to apply these, these like, ad hoc and punitive things like head taxes. Yeah. I mean, I guess you don't get a lot locally, and that's a question. Should you have yeah. local? I, I think one of the bigger ideas in the past, large corporations are much more likely to kind of just, you know, they might leave your municipality and, like, live on outside in the county well, line. that's always the hot topic as well. It's like, yeah. it's what, well, and this what this whole situation do, has done, too, is it's turned, like, local lefties, like, local progressives, like DSA San Francisco types, have turned against economy altogether and money making and business altogether have been turned against by the far the far left in the in some of the far left in the bay area well it's an incredibly privileged position to be in saying this economy yeah. is so good we can actively take out a machete and chop at it yeah. because it is the problem but i mean go to a place with a depressed economy go to yeah. places where unemployment is high go yeah, to places where the golden goose left the country the auto industry <laughs> yeah. or any other place in the country that's yeah. horribly blighted like <laughs> and those places are not free of the rich and powerful exploiting the poor. Like, look at Detroit. It's one family owns all the land. Mm. They're, you know, they're using their influence in the political process to kick out poor homeowners and, you know, snatch their land. Yeah. And they're rebuilding up the core of Detroit as a corporatist, privatized uh, haven for young young uh high-skilled workers who then can use all the services that are offered by this increasingly oligarchic family. That's what happens when the the engine of wealth creation, which used to give wealth to all, yeah. or at least 
a bigger slice went to those on the bottom. When that dries up completely, it's only those with a ton of power have who can come in and swoop in and remake the system to their ends. Vulture capitalism. Yes. The vultures can come in in a situation like that. I dread when the tech companies leave because the tech companies, like the tech industry in general, has the potential to be a great generator of wealth for the bottom half. And it... It could be if our if we didn't use land in such a wasteful way. If really, I really think so. And the the benefits that the some benefits that do go to the lower classes from the tech industry, often what they take home, I would think, would be wasted on commuting and rent. Yeah, because they suffer more than anybody from this system. I think there's a certain nostalgia to the fact we just wanted like was in the Bay Area yeah. a couple decades ago. In the 70s. A, a couple decades ago, yeah, you know, the economy was working, it yeah. was reasonable, but it was it wasn't like overheated like it is today. Yeah, and the white people had all moved to their <laughs> suburbs and they didn't yeah. have to look at the urban problems. But at the point when this is happening, things were growing. For the economy to work, it basically has to you know, mostly be growing in the way things are working now. It's very hard. If the economy is not growing, bad things happen, and they happen first to the poor. Yeah. At at the best situation, you have growth with decline, and you have an equilibrium. But they just kind of want decline to get back. You know, it reminds me of the old thing. It's like, you know, lose weight without uh, without diet. Yeah, they want to lose weight without doing anything. Without diet or exercise. Yes, exactly. I'm I'm pretty sure that only leaves disease. Yeah, they want to eat bagels (laughs) and drink milkshakes and and, and lose weight. That's what they want. Yeah. Well, they, they want land to be cheap. They want, they're describing a Bay Area. Not their land, property no, owner. their land. <laughs> they're describing a Bay, well, <laughs> they're describing a Bay Area where they could break in easily, where land was cheap, where it was easy to do business, where cool people of all kinds could move in here and start to do cool stuff. Yeah. That is now not the Bay Area. I would contend that the Bay Area of decades past was so great because hippies and artists and Black Panthers and people looking to start businesses could get here and do things, live well, all life. All the cool people, to be clear, were in real cities. Uh, and, and yeah. the, uh, Santa Clara County has never had the cool people. Yeah, I mean, it was a bedroom community for San Francisco and San Jose. Yeah. And and then, well, it did. San Fran- Santa Clara and San Mateo counties have always been home to the, like the, as we think of it, Silicon Valley tech companies, like starting back in the day. Your, was, your you, Fairchilds, your Intels, your... I mean, it used to be an interesting suburban area. It used to be the home of Chuck E. Cheese. You know, this is the, the place, birthplace. the birthplace of Chuck E. Cheese. That's the thing. Like, this is where, like, basically suburbia maybe hit kind of a seventies and eighties kind of high peak here in Los Angeles too, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, look at Orange County and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's and, a, yeah, San Fernando Valley. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's a truth. Suburbs, unlike cities. There's a limit where the suburban model breaks down, and it yes. breaks down hard. And when it breaks down, you have to give up on it. Yes. It, does, it is impossible to salvage. It's, yeah. yeah. And it, California's history is so short in comparison to the rest of the country. And so much of its meaningful... And so much of the meaningful growth of its population in cities took place in the in the era of the car and the suburb, that this is all of California's history, almost all of California's history, the vast majority, the vast, vast, vast majority of its population growth took place during this period. It's planning, it's city building, and we're being choked by it now. We're being choked by 
our decisions in the past that has built the California that we see that's gross in all these ways, and we're desperately resisting the change that would be necessary to move away from it. Every car-based decision is sacred. You, you can yeah. talk about, you can use the median on Stevens Creek Boulevard, but we're not talking about it at all. About don't take a lane. Yeah, don't take a lane of absolutely anything, you know? Yeah, God, it's like, no. I mean, it is it is insane on its face, you know? Yes. It's, <laughs> it's just, I mean, we are unwilling to look at any possible you know, sacrifice in what the suburban assumptions were of this area yes. and it's killing us. Yes. I mean, yeah. when you look at, you look at the, the mass transit, the little mass transit that we do have, with the exception of Muni, kind of. But these, these, these are like suburban, suburban, more, more like commuter rail than a metro. Look, look at BART. It's designed to get people from the rich suburbs yeah. long distances at reasonably high speeds for a metro for a metro system of that age yeah, I mean, to the urban core. That's what it's for. It's for facilitating suburban growth. Which is why you have huge parking lots next yes. to most of them. Exactly, for the, enabling white flight. They're building the new, I mean, the Diridon station for BART in San, San Jose is gigantic and gigantic parking lots next to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is insane. Yeah. That, <laughs> downtown, San, like, downtown San Jose reminds me of downtown Los Angeles. It's wide streets. It's empty after a certain hour and it's towering parking garages that are empty after 10 p.m. Yeah. So, I mean, here's a question. Is there really any hope that based upon in the face of just the most maddening failure of every system that people are unwilling to really look at anything. Instead, they go to the back room and want to work with Hyperloop TT for some sort of, you know, go to the shaman for, for curing everything. I mean, we're unwilling to look at real solutions. Is there any chance things can get better here? Or do you think that th- we should only serve as a as a warning for other areas not to do what we are doing? Ha, 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 ha. I can't. I can't say the Bay Area is unsavable. I can't say that. I I have nothing but hope for for the Bay Area, right? Like, and hopefully, if we record enough podcasts, enough people will hear in positions of power, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm kind of joking, but but changing the language, the language has changed. Sure. Among city council people, and among homeowners, and among the young, among the old, it hasn't really changed. I feel like at the tech companies. Or maybe even at the national level, or at sort of like the news reporting level that may talk about People such a project. People never talk about housing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really never. Like, like just the fact that the Yimbyism is starting to become a thing that people who are not just in the Bay Area early know about is super cool to me. Like the Planet Money with Laura and Sonia. Like a lot of people are going to watch that. Yeah. No, and 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 I think there's there's assumptions of how cities are run which have more or less been unchanged in small town assumptions of you know in the FDR era you know yeah the, the big the last thing that changed was the car and building yeah. for the car and i i mean i think that there needs to be kind of a realignment of just ideas of how you run cities there that... are so many ideas like <laughs> yeah. it's not hard someone with a bachelor's in urban planning can do a better job than we're doing right now with literally one person but they would need incredible power to rezone vast swaths of area, to add, to drop in the transit lines we need to acquire the right of way. It's the politics that's in the way. Like technology and planning and human ingenuity are not the problem. It's the politics and the will to get the powerful to sacrifice. Yeah. It, that's the problem. And that's, I think it's, it's progressivism that is fighting the powerful and the haves for common good economic growth and a, a slice for the bottom half. That's what I think that's what progressivism is. And if we can make that 
And like a lot of people around here, they really want to be progressive. You ask them like, oh, we're so progressive. We care about blah. They want to be recognized as progressive. Oh my God, yes. (laughs) If you make this as a progressive, really progressive issue and really try to win people over to to show nimbyism for the for the conservative farce that it is to really get people over on admitting that we should grow cities and that we should get more people if changing we, the discourse and if we can get the sierra club if yes. we get the sierra club to fight cars yes. in a good way which they are unwilling to do yes. the sierra club has fought for the car-based city yeah, and it just makes you feel you're so doomed. But I think we just need to kind of like draw lines in the, in the sand, saying you cannot save car culture in an urban core. And yeah. Santa Clara County, San Mateo County, you know, these are urban cores. They're just really bad urban cores. Yeah, well, and we need to recognize them as urban cores. Yes. And we need to legislate for that, and we need to redraw administrative boundaries for that. We need to be progressive and creative with how we deploy these solutions we can't be like oh we'll just we'll do this little thing we'll build like one bike bridge like that's a that's a pissant solution by people yeah. who don't want to sacrifice and are scared of making real change and i do worry about how ideas go out because this story it went out you know apple you know head tax is next hyperloop to connect it's like and people are like flashy news item it's like okay i'm keeping track of the housing scene when people are unwilling to really dive into the fact that yeah. things are so entirely unsustainable at every possible level yes and yeah and we need massive reforms that is never brought up in the news no absolutely the mercury news does a good job about re- continuing to report on the housing crisis but that's kind of the extent of it. They don't then say, remember, citizens, we'll have to change the way we use land to solve this. They're just like, it keeps getting more expensive. And there's no end in sight. Yeah. Like, it's good to get people to realize, like, again, two years ago, people wouldn't even really admit that the housing crisis existed or was a problem. Mm. And then a year ago, it's like everyone's like, well, of course, the housing crisis exists. But, you know, you haven't sold me on building more housing. And now you have city councils making disingenuous promises like, oh, we do care about housing. You know, mm-hmm. They're making disingenuous promises, but this is progress. Yeah. We can maybe get them to make sincere promises about it's a slow process. Like this is a very short amount of time for these massive changes to be made. It, it, it especially in the midst of this breakneck economic growth and breakneck growth in inequality that we're seeing, especially in the political stress of the Trump era when people don't have like the 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 don't have the energy to pay attention to anything but what's going on in the news. But I think this is much more important and is, I think, personally much more fulfilling than than paying attention to, you know, yeah. day, day 300 of Trump-Russia-Gate. Like, yeah, uh, you, you can show up to Cupertino City Council yourself. See yes. the stars of these stories. Yes. And, and I think uh, there's a plug. Uh, I think we're, we're wrapping up here. One plug is Cupertino-Valco project, which is trying to get a marginal amount of housing units you know, built at the the Valco site. Yeah, uh, marginal, but pretty pretty good. I mean, big you know, project by exactly, South Bay standards. Exactly. I mean, you need you can't say let's not do anything until a revolution. You need you need <laughs> yes. to, you need to fight for what's on the thank thing. you. That's the problem yeah. with the revolutionary yeah. left in the Bay Area. They'd rather do nothing and let the rich take more and more of the system than even participate in a system which they consider to be well beyond saving. Yeah. Like you can't do that. I mean, heightening the contradictions it doesn't work. Yeah. I believe. 
naive. It's also lazy, especially if you're not very, yeah. if you're not willing to just really think things through yes. and actually try to convince people what needs to change. A lot of these people are very, you know, sloppy in what they're thinking. Yes. But, uh, I'm for consciousness raising and arguing about theory, but I'm also for action. Yeah. Uh, so Cupertino, they are they have the option of doing the SB thirty five lever, and yes. basically they're going to build Valco with uh, you know fifty percent affordable housing rates, and it's going to have uh, you know how many units I forget, but the the like other a, near near a thousand, right? Yeah, the other option is still on the table, which is they're going to avoid SB thirty five and and work through the normal yes. heavily permitted yeah. process, kind of use SB thirty five as like a minimum viable project and negotiate with the city for something uh, extra, hopefully, knowing that they have this in their back pocket to force the project to go ahead, knowing that that this is ironclad. So Cupertino, it's it's going to have a series of things about the non-SB35 path. I think uh, they say uh, September 11th, uh, never forget, is going to be the uh, is going to be the uh, the big meeting where they're going to decide on it. So uh, check your local listings. Check out. Be there, folks. Yeah, I might be out of town for that. Unfortunately, I might be out of town for that, but. I'll see. Yeah, but there's a, there's a number of different things. So, But thank you so much for coming on, talking about the Hyperloop uh, yeah. and, and just other value capture as always. I mean, I feel it's, it's always the same territory, but until it's the front page of every story, is value capture is important. I, yes. I think it's necessary to just yes. make myself hoarse. And land about. use, zoning, and permitting <laughs> reform are important. And, and taxation and taxation reform is important. Yeah. But that's why we're here. And we're going to go out. You, you speak at meetings. You meet your friends. You... Use every opportunity you can to be to be to be serious and earnest and well researched and well spoken in promoting this view, and we might change some people's minds. Yeah, and you need to get the point that everyone you know is annoyed by you, and you're basically <laughs> everyone your family doesn't want to talk to you. You're not invited to the parties anymore because you don't shut up about this. That's that's yeah. that's success, folks. So yeah, thanks for thanks for coming here. Yeah, absolutely. This has it's been wonderful to get on and talk again about these things. Thank you very much, Mark. This has been the Henry George Program. Joined today by Max Kapczynski, talking about Cupertino, Hyperloop, and Value Capture, and the President Hotel. You can find uh, full-length episodes, the entire archive, and such at seatthecat.org. There's also ways you can subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher, and other things like that. This is a presentation of Case Issue Stanford. <laughs>